We're on the corner of 156th Street and Garrison Avenue in Hunts Point. It's an industrial neighborhood in the South Bronx that juts out just a little into the East River. During the week, this place is full of all sorts of commercial activity. The blocks are lined with chemical plants, foundries, auto shops, and warehouses. But on this cold Saturday afternoon in early March, it's quiet, except for the occasional roar of an 18-wheeler and the squawk of a seagull. You never know that this neighborhood had such a violent past. We're talking to a couple of workers. One of them grew up around here. Basically, what what y'all want to know around? A cop made a claim that this used to be a popular spot for uh, dumping dead bodies. Oh, so, back in the 80s? Yeah. Back in the 80s, I yeah. heard about that, but I wasn't you know, a baby by that time. What did you hear about it? I uh, heard that they was used to find bodies over here in the, in the train tracks and stuff, and the, around the, the waters. That's what brought us here. 31 years ago, a man's dismembered body was found on this street corner. He'd been cut into pieces and stuffed into trash bags. His head was never found. His name was Bruce Bailey. He was a 54-year-old tenants' rights activist who'd spent decades fighting landlords on Manhattan's Upper West Side. He was a well-known figure in New York City's left-wing political circles, a graduate of Columbia College, a husband, and a father. And on June 14, 1989, Bailey was the victim of one of the most brutal murders in New York City's history. And his case was never solved. Yeah, it was a big... Like big news at the time, you know, a lot of papers were writing about it. Of course, it. I, I could imagine because it's, it's like the first time that you're going to see some stuff going on like that, body parts, what well, the hell, who had the guts to do some stuff like that, you know? That's exactly what we wanted to know. Who would have the guts to commit a crime like this? What could have motivated someone to murder and mutilate an activist? And after more than three decades as a cold case, why has this murder gone unsolved? I'm Josh Lash. And I'm Ann Margaret Warner. This is Shoe Leather, an investigative podcast that digs up stories from New York City's past to find out how yesterday's news affects us today. This is season one, New York in the 90s, the murder of Bruce Bailey. The name Bruce Bailey is no longer a familiar one to most New Yorkers. But if you work your way back through the newspaper archives, it's not hard to find him. Partly because Bailey was a public figure, the president of a tenants union, and partly because the details of his murder were so gruesome. Bailey's family, friends, and others in the city's housing activism scene demanded answers about his killing, but few came. The NYPD investigated for about a year before shelving the case, in 1990. Josh and I pieced together what we could from news coverage at the time to try and figure out what happened. Here's what we know. On the evening of June 14th, 1989, Bruce Bailey and his wife Nellie go to the eighth grade graduation of one of their sons. Then they come home and have dinner together. But Bailey isn't done with his day. There's a group of renters at a building up on 125th Street in Harlem who need help with a negligent landlord. So at around 6.30, Bailey says goodbye to Nellie and his son and walks to his car. That's the last time his family ever sees him alive. Bailey 
We decide to visit Bailey's old apartment to retrace some of his steps on the day he disappeared. The apartment is tucked into a row of stone buildings, each about four stories high. It's on a quiet residential street between two busy avenues. The Columbia campus is about a five minute walk away and you can hear the bells at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, just around the corner. He had dinner with his wife at this apartment, and then he walked to his car. When Bailey heads to his car, it's early evening, and it's mid-June, so the sun is still out. And it was somewhere along this, what is this, 200 feet? It was on this this little... Room for a woman. Room for seven cars to park. Yeah, Parallel on this park. stretch, he was abducted. Bailey was six foot two, 225 pounds. How does a guy like that get abducted right off of a busy avenue on a summer evening when the sun hasn't set yet with several businesses in sight and no one sees or hears anything? This is one of the many things that confused investigators about this case back in 89. Lieutenant John Sebring, the cop in charge of the investigation, told the New York Times that, quote, every aspect of the case was puzzling, but most puzzling was that Bruce has been annoying people for 20 years. Why now have they decided to kill him? When Josh and I started looking into Bailey's murder, we requested the incident report from the NYPD. Theoretically, this would have all of the details about the case that the police collected at the time. What they knew, what they didn't, wrapped up in one file that we, as members of the public, could ask for. And hopefully, it would give us a clue as to who was on the police's short list of suspects. But we were told that those requests can take months to process, or even longer for a crime this old. And we were having no luck getting updates from the NYPD, despite calling nearly every day. Thank you for calling the New York City Police Department. The party you are trying to reach is unavailable at this time. Please call again at a later time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Then, I got a call. Little Josh? Yeah, hi. You were looking for Lieutenant Sebring in in relation to the Bruce Bailey case? That's John Sebring. In 1989, he was the squad commander of the 41st Precinct where Bailey's body was found. Back then, the 41st Precinct dealt with so much violent crime, it was known as Fort Apache. There was even a movie made about it in 1981, starring Paul Newman. New York's 41st Precinct. They call it Fort Apache, the Bronx. It's a tough place for an honest cop. You know, I've been on this job 18 years. I remember when I had the 4-1, we had Hunts Point. We would find these dead bodies out there. We had no way of even identifying them. Sebring joined the NYPD in 1961. He's been retired for more than two decades now. He's 87 years old, and he lives in Florida. Sebring led the NYPD's investigation into the murder, and he remembers just about every detail of this case, kind of like a walking, talking police report. Uh, He was found uh, out in Hunts Point on the late tour by a radio car. He Hmm. was in three different um, trash bags. His torso was in one, his arms were in one, and his legs were in another. We never found the head. It's amazing Sebring can recount all of this from memory. New York City saw a record number of killings in 1989. 
and Sebring had his hands full in Hunts Point. How many homicides did you typically work on in a year when you were on the force as a lieutenant? In the 4-1, average about 60 homicides a year. Last year, the 41st Precinct had only five. Was there anything that stood out to you about this case in particular that was interesting? Well, it was the way he was murdered. That's unusual. Usually people just stab somebody or shoot them and that's the end of it. That was another puzzling thing. Who would go through all that effort to kill Bailey, but then just leave his body in trash bags on the street corner? Especially when the East River is just a five-minute drive away? One hypothesis is that whoever it was didn't just want Bruce Bailey to go away. They wanted him to be found like that. This is an interview with Bruce Bailey conducted by Eve Wolfson on October 17, 1987. Okay, well, can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up, first of all? I know it was in Ohio, but right. what kind of a town it was. In? Toledo, Ohio. At the time I grew up there, it was a town of about 150,000. This interview was recorded 33 years ago, two years before Bailey's murder. It was recorded by a friend and held at the Columbia University Library. We had it digitized. Uh, a cold Toledo has pneumonia. When we first heard Bailey speaking in these tapes, it felt like we were sitting down and talking with him. And he was agreeing to share his story with us. So it was partly in my personality, I guess, that not being a genuine pacifist at heart. Are you calling about the Bruce Bailey oral history that I did? You might recognize Eve Wolfson's voice. She was the one who interviewed Bailey in 1987. Wolfson knew Bailey well. But he also had this booming voice and this booming laugh, very uh, sort of dark sense of humor. And he was really known in the neighborhood. You know, he was a real character by everybody in the neighborhood at that time. She edited the Heights and Valley News, a newspaper for the group Bailey headed, the Columbia Tenants Union, or CTU. And they were friends. Uh, it was horrible. I mean, you know, when they found they found his body and he'd been, you know... You know about that, right? Yeah. Um, that was just really horrible. I just remember sort of not being able to watch, you know, TV shows that I used to watch because there'd be crime shows, you know, that ordinarily I'd watch. Like, oh, this is entertaining. And suddenly it just seemed very real. It seemed like something had happened. This man had been murdered. This man who I knew had been murdered. Bailey told his life story to Wolfson in that interview. How he grew up in the Midwest, roaming around the Irish hills in Michigan. So I had kind of a semi-rural upbringing. Before coming to school uh, at Columbia in New York City. Also, I had a kind of a <clears throat> romantic idea of the big city. So going to college in the big city, I could see the big city and uh, learn something about it and go to college at the same time. These little details, they were started to draw me further into Bailey's story. They made me see him not as a random victim, but as a person that I could have known. You see, I grew up in the Midwest, just 30 minutes from Bailey's hometown of Toledo. And I moved to New York because I was fascinated with the big city. And I started school at Columbia. We have our many differences, of course, but these little similarities, they hooked me deeper into Bruce's story. As a student, Bailey was introduced to leftist politics. He was a conscientious objector during the Korean War. After he graduated in 1959, Bailey stuck around in New York City. He started hanging in neighborhood bars with writers and intellectuals, key figures in the counterculture movement. 
Jack Kerouac, the author of On the Road. I knew his uh, friend Neil Cassidy out in California, too. Ginsburg was around there, too. Allen Ginsberg, the poet who wrote Howl. Bailey does a lot of name dropping in this interview. He read socialist philosophy. I subscribe wholeheartedly to the Marxist view that Engel expressed over and over again that there will be no human society until there's socialism. They all talk about And eventually, his politics led him to a career in housing activism. His first big fight was against his alma mater, Columbia University. We decided to found the Columbia Tenants Union together with a couple of neighborhood activists. And when, what, what year was this? Now? 1973. Our main focus was with Columbia Housing. And, uh, At the time, Columbia was buying up affordable housing in Morningside Heights and converting it into dorms, leaving the tenants with nowhere to go. What was happening then, you can, we can see in retrospect, was a, a kind of first wave of gentrification. That's Don Guttenplan. Today, he's the editor of The Nation magazine. Back in 1989, he was a general assignment reporter for Newsday. Guttenplan covered Bailey's murder, and he grew familiar with the housing rights landscape in New York in the 90s. And he sees what happened to Bailey as a particularly brutal moment in the history of gentrification in the city. You know, this is something that happened in all over, all over the city, but it certainly happened around Columbia. I mean... You know, the reason that the Columbia Tenants Union was formed was because Columbia University was, in those days, the largest private landowner in the city. In terms of properties owned, it still is. But back then, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, Columbia was far from the only landowner, jacking up rent prices in Morningside Heights in central Harlem. This left long-term tenants suddenly unable to pay their rent. They were often evicted and forced into tenement buildings with landlords that just didn't care. You know, there's an intrinsic antagonism which is made much more vicious uh, when you're talking about not like maybe somebody having a nice paint job in their apartment, but whether their heat works or whether their stove is going to poison them with carbon monoxide or whether they're going to get electrocuted because the wiring is shot, you know, or whether uh, the, the rain comes in on their kid's bedroom the winter. So, you know, it's high stakes. Seeing gentrification happen in real time attracted people to the CTU's mission like Michael Smith. Okay, well, my name is Michael Smith. Um, I came to New York in 1978. Um, Smith worked with Bailey and also edited the group's newspaper, the Heights and Valley News. The two were close friends, and Smith and Eve Wilson were married at one point. Because, you know, gentrification was big business, and, uh, you know, you know that... uh, line of, I think it's Balzac, it says somewhere that there's, uh, behind every great fortune, there's a great crime. Um, a lot of money was made uh, in the gentrification boom and the co-op boom in those days, and a lot of crimes uh, lie behind it. Bailey became well-known for a tactic to get landlords to fold, rent strikes. That's when you get all the tenants in a building to stop paying rent until housing conditions improve. It was a way to hit landlords in their wallet without waiting for housing court to step in. You know, he'd go into these little lobbies and ratty buildings in Harlem, and, and um, you know, there'd be a, a group of a dozen, you know, totally frightened and intimidated tenants, you know, who were just at the end of their rope. 
And, you know, before the night was over, he'd have them on rent strike, uh, even though they were just scared to death of the landlord and what he might do and what reprisals he might bring to bear. Um, he was really an amazing, uh, had an amazing gift for putting heart into people. It was stories like this that made Guttenplan admire Bailey's activism. When I first went into the story, I thought of him as, a, as, as just a hero. But the more Guttenplan learned about Bailey, the more he saw him as a complicated and sometimes controversial figure. One of the things that sets CTU apart is that um, they always had a slightly dodgier reputation than some of the other groups. In his reporting, Guttenplan outlined some dark spots on Bailey's record. In 1979, Bailey and his wife were convicted of filing for $14,000 in illegal unemployment benefits. In the early 80s, Bailey was accused by the New York Attorney General of embezzling funds from the CTU Treasury. In 1982, Bailey, Michael Smith, and another CTU official were accused of assault. Both of these cases were eventually dropped, but they were enough to get the CTU removed from the Metropolitan Council on Housing. It's an umbrella organization for tenant advocacy groups in New York City. Gunplan also heard from renters that the CTU would take over a building and not follow through on promised repairs. Landlords alleged that Bailey regularly accepted bribes to ease pressure. People close to Bailey dismissed these charges as slander. Nellie Bailey, his widow, even called it her husband's second dismemberment. But Bailey's friends admit that he could be abrasive. You know, he wasn't exactly a warm and fuzzy person. Now, Bruce was, he was a very direct guy, I will say that. I mean, he didn't, uh, he didn't uh, pull his punches and he didn't indulge in euphemism very much. But uh, he wasn't a mean person and he wasn't, and he could be very gentle, but, you know, he had a low tolerance for bullshit. He really didn't like seeing the strong bully the weak. He really didn't like seeing that at all. The bullies in Bailey's world were landlords. So when he turned up dead in the summer of 1989, those who knew him all thought pretty much the same thing. I don't think there was ever any doubt in anybody's mind that it was a landlord. I mean, that you know, it's like motive means an opportunity, right? I mean, it, 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 they certainly had the motive. I mean, he cost, Bruce had cost these guys a lot of money over the years. And they don't take kindly to that, you know? And some, you know, some of them just see it as a cost of doing business and they shrug it off and they're, you know, like white collar guys. And some of them take it a lot more personally. <laughs> Here's what Guttenplan wrote back then. Bailey targeted a landlord's pocketbook for the same reason he tried to take their buildings away. He knew he had to win to keep the tenants with him. But it may have been this very aggressiveness that cost him his life. Bailey was a pusher, said one investigator. He kept coming at you. And we have to think he pushed somebody out there too hard. After all of his reporting three decades ago, Guttenplan says he hasn't been able to get what happened to Bruce Bailey out of his head. It's always bothered him that Bailey's murder went unsolved. It's like Humphrey Bogart's line in The Maltese Falcon, he tells us. This won't do any good. That when a man's partner is killed, he's supposed to do something about it. The NYPD figured that whoever killed Bailey 
might have been a landlord trying to send a message. There was a Village Voice article from August of 1989 that listed three plausible suspects in the murder. All were landlords. And according to Lieutenant John Sebring, the NYPD had their eye on one in particular. We got another suspect because uh, Bruce Bailey was a tenant activist. And he had trouble with this fellow. His first name was Jack. Can't remember his last name. Was his last name um, Ferranti? Could be. I, I can't remember. It is. I knew the name Jack Ferranti, but I didn't know how to pronounce it because I had only seen it in print. And Don Guttenplan's reporting on Bailey's long list of enemies. Jack Ferranti, who lost ownership of four tenements on 147th Street after Bailey organized a rent strike, has an arrest record, police sources said. In 1984, Ferranti was arrested after a high-speed car chase. At the time, he had accumulated more than $500,000 in fines and had one of the longest records of housing violations in the city. And then we found his name again. In 1995, the Village Voice ran a five-page profile on Ferranti and his misdeeds. They named him as New York's baddest landlord. He owned a lot of buildings, and apparently... Bruce Bailey was a thorn in his side. I figured this guy jacked for it because this was an anger thing. And he was really, really pissed off at uh, Bruce Bailey. According to Sebring, Franti made public threats against Bailey in the weeks before his murder. That was enough for police to get a search warrant for a garage Franti owned in East Harlem. We searched the whole place. We were looking for the... We thought we'd find that whatever machine had cut Bailey up, but we didn't find anything that would incriminate him to Bruce Bailey's murder. And there was an informant who was willing to say that Franti killed Bailey. But... He was terrified. He said, he said to my sergeant that he said, this guy will not just kill me, he'll kill all my family. So he refused to um, give him up. To be clear, Ferranti was never charged with Bailey's murder or arrested. In fact, he was never even questioned about it by police. Did they ever bring uh, Jack Ferranti in for questioning? No, we never did. But if you tell somebody to bring them for investigation and they tell you they're not going to come in, nothing you can do about it short of arresting them. And what are you going to charge them with? So I'm convinced that this guy Jack was the killer, but exactly how he killed him, we'll never know. If Sebring and the NYPD were so sure about Ferranti, why did this case go cold? To help answer that question, we called Joe Jackalone. He's a retired NYPD sergeant, and he used to head up the Bronx Cold Case Squad. He wrote a book on cold cases. A lot of times, police departments might put a time frame on it, like if uh, you haven't made an arrest in a year or so, they would consider it a cold case. But it really has to do with an active lead. And an active lead could be a person of interest, uh, waiting on forensics, those kind of things would keep a case active. Uh, if you don't have any of those things, so you have no suspects, you have no forensic evidence or DNA or video surveillance or telephone records now, subpoenas, all that other stuff, if then we would fall in the cold case category. A cold case doesn't mean a closed case. There's no statute of limitations on murder. But remember, when Bailey was killed, it was 1989. DNA, video surveillance, 
that's hard to come by in a case like this. And without any physical evidence, the NYPD couldn't consider Franti as an active suspect. Even so, Sebring says he kept tabs on Jack Franti for a few years. And then, in 1992, something happened. A fire was deliberately set at an apartment building in Queens. Lieutenant Tommy Williams, a firefighter on the scene, fell to his death trying to escape the blaze. It was one of Ferranti's buildings. He had ordered it set on fire to collect some insurance money. He was arrested in 1994, and two years later, he was sentenced on 19 counts, including arson resulting in death. During his sentencing, prosecutors brought up his connection to the Bailey murder, and they alleged that his younger brother, Mario, was also involved. But this was dismissed by the judge as hearsay. When he went to jail, that was pretty much the end of the trail for us because he was our prime suspect. We did all we could, but while we're still investigating him, as I say, he got locked up for arson homicide, and that took care of him. I think they put him away for life, I think. Not quite. Today, 67-year-old Ferranti is in a low-security federal prison in Pennsylvania. With time off for good behavior, He's due to be released in 2026. We reached out to Franti. We mailed him a letter. We haven't heard back. But we do know that he has petitioned for an early release from prison, as recently as this winter. He asked to serve out the remainder of his sentence at home. The request was denied. Then Franti appealed. His attorney argued that there is, quote, no evidence in Franti's past of any history of violence. In April, the judge again dismissed Franti's request for early release. Not everyone who was close to Bailey buys the NYPD story. That they tried as hard as they could, but ultimately, there wasn't enough evidence to charge someone with his murder. Bailey's friend Michael Smith from the Heights and Valley News is one. I, you know, I don't think they made much of an effort, honestly. In talking to Lieutenant John Sebring, we got the sense that he did all he could. But that may have not been enough. The Bronx DA could have offered protection for Sebring's informant. The Manhattan DA could have issued search warrants for more of Franti's buildings. The mayor could have made this case a top priority for law enforcement. None of that happened. The reason why it didn't go anywhere uh, is nobody really gave a shit. Ron Kuby is a civil rights lawyer. He represented Bailey's family after the murder. Kuby made overtures to the New York Attorney General asking for the FBI to get involved in the investigation. But he never got an answer. I mean, Bruce didn't exactly make himself popular with anybody. This was not a time where, you know, irritating tenants, organizers were winning any friends. And nobody was going to get anything by, by pissing off the, the real estate industry and, and, like, siding with tenant organizers on anything. I think it's true that nobody powerful cared. Uh, but, you know, I think I think Lieutenant Sebring cared, I cared, I'm sure Nellie Bailey and their sons cared. Uh, but, you know, he was a tenant organizer, so in, in New York City that meant he was working for the powerless as opposed to the powerful. The mysteries surrounding Bailey's murder, they aren't unsolvable. 
Some answers might be in a case file somewhere, where they've been gathering dust for 30 years. Other answers may lie with a witness, someone who saw what happened to Bailey that night in June, or even played a part in his abduction. According to our cold case expert, Joe Jackalone, getting any of that will take a lot of time, and even more luck. Well, if you have a case that's been open for 30 years, you don't close it within, you know, 45 minutes of three commercials. I think partly what's significant about it is that it takes us back to a, a much raw or a more raw period in New York City history. You know, when um, when gentrification didn't mean a, a Whole Foods opening up down the block, when it meant that that your landlord uh, either brought in uh, criminals into your building or burned it down. Uh, you know, and when people weren't just displaced, sometimes they were beaten or murdered. We reached out to some of Bruce Bailey's family. They didn't want to be a part of the story. But Bailey's youngest son did tell us over the phone that he sometimes wonders whether his father's work had a lasting impact all these years later. It's a question Michael Smith has been grappling with for years. And I spoke at his funeral, and uh, it was, uh, <laughs> forgive me, it was a little difficult um, because I was uh, extremely fond of him and uh, admired him immensely. He was the only guy I had ever known in my, well, known personally in my own life, known, you know, as, as, a, as a friend and a, as a colleague whom I would call heroic. Do you still think about him at all? A lot. A lot. I look around, uh, you know, what the neighborhood has become. And, you know, there's a lot of places that, that, are, that still, for me, have associations with him. Um, the former Columbia Tenants Union office, I think, is now some kind of a, a gym or a Pilates studio or something like that. So a lot's changed. And, you know, a lot, uh, a lot of the changes that have happened were the, the very things that Bruce was trying to prevent. So it's a little, you know, it's a little elegiac and mournful sometimes to see, uh, you know, that uh, we were so roundly defeated, really. I mean, there's no getting around it. We fought the good fight and and we lost. Um, But but there's something to be said for fighting the good fight anyway, I think. And and that's what Bruce would have told you. (laughs) You know, it doesn't, you know, you're not necessarily called to prevail, but you are called to do your duty. We don't really know what Bailey would have told us about the good fight. But we do know what he told Eve Wolfson back in 1987. That before the CTU, before Jack Ferranti, before any of that, Bailey had always felt the need to fight for the powerless. Even as a sophomore in college, in his dorm at Columbia. Then they would pick on certain guys. There was this poor kid from Michigan. And for some reason, the, the guys, on the, the pre-meds on my floor started picking on him. It's bullshit, you know? And uh, I remember I had a fight with some guy because he's picking on Because, of course, that, I got all self-righteous. You know, I guess I, you know, I figured, I mean, not figured, instinctively, gave me some importance to be a defender of the weak. So, uh, so then I had fights with these guys. Which I remember I grabbed one, I was going to do damage to him, but, uh, and, uh, so I, so I moved out of there.
Shoe Leather is a production of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me and Margaret Warner. And me, Josh Lash. Joanne Farian is our executive producer and professor. Dale Maharaj is our co-professor. Keshav Pandya is our technical advisor. Special thanks to Columbia Journalism Librarian Christina Williams. Columbia Digital Librarian Michelle Wilson. Peter Leonard from Gimlet Media. Rachel Quester from The New York Times, The Daily. Emily Martinez and David Bloom from Audible. Madeline Barron and Samara Freemark from American Public Media, In the Dark. Susan White from Garage Media. Nate DeMaio from The Memory Palace. Jonathan Hirsch from Neon Hum Media. Clint Schaff from the LA Times Studios. And Stuart Carl for his legal advice. Shoe Leather's theme music, Squeegees, by Ben Lewis, Daron Zunez, and Camille Miller. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about Shoe Leather in this episode, go to our website, shoeleather.org. Let's go back a little bit to the um, to the newspaper. To uh, when, when you know, I don't I don't have energy yeah, for this debate. You know, and yeah, I I think that, that to to go. Uh, I know it's already been almost two hours. Yeah, I can't. I uh, and I haven't had breakfast, and I've also got this kid with yeah. the with the chicken pox. I think if we're going to do that, I have to do it another day. All right.